You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Doctor's Lounge. I'm Dr. Scott Barber, and you're listening to me on America's Web Radio. And we got a loaded show for you guys today. The last few weeks has been, I guess I should say the last few months, has been totally taken over by COVID, and we've been talking about that for a long time, and we're going to talk about it some today, but the main basis for the show, the Doctors' Lounge and the Docs for Patient Care Foundation, is to promote free market health care and to explain to you guys the difference between socialized medicine and free market health care and to help everybody understand why it's so important that we never allow socialized medicine to take hold in this country and that we make decisions and we vote accordingly to help promote free market medicine. Now, people who are regular listeners to this show understand that our system of health care is based on Hippocrates. Hippocrates believed that health care was directed towards the individual, uh, that it was the individual that was the focus of care and that was most important. And doctors in the United States, when we complete our training, we take the Hippocratic Oath. This is in stark contrast to Plato, who advocated for a healthcare system that served the state and the individual needs were secondary. And out of Plato, we see socialized medicine where government is completely in control of the healthcare system. And what we get is a one size fits all system that cares very little for individual needs. And what we want to promote is the free market healthcare system, which focuses on the individual and allows doctors to practice their Hippocratic oath, which is to do no harm. Now, sadly, for many, many decades, we have been slowly creeping towards socialized medicine and people that benefit politically from the implementation of socialized medicine commonly will use a foil to play on our emotions to help us move towards socialized medicine in the form of Medicare, which takes care of the old. Uh, nobody wants to see uh, people who are elderly, who are losing the ability to care for themselves, to be out on the street. And so it's an easy push for them to say, well, Medicare, it just takes care of the old. We have uh, S-CHIP, which is the very young um, Americans are good-hearted people. Our country is predicated on Judeo-Christian values. And of course, we care about everybody among us. The individual is important. And so when they push for care of the young, it's very hard for us to resist, especially when we don't really understand what we're talking about. Because the general platitudes about taking care of the children, taking care of the poor, taking care of the old, we all believe in that. But what I'm here to do is to show you how, how socialized medicine does not accomplish that task. And nothing has illustrated the problems with socialized medicine better than our response to the COVID-19 outbreak. Now, we have commonly talked about Milton Friedman, and uh, Milton Friedman was the great economist who talked about the four ways to spend money. I like to bring it up on this show all the time because it really helps people understand what happens with the cost and quality 
of the goods and services that we purchase, and in, in this case, healthcare. So you can spend others people other people's money on you. Uh, cost doesn't matter because it's other people's money. Quality does matter because it's for you. You can spend your money on others. Uh, cost matters, but quality doesn't matter. It's your money, but whatever you're buying is for somebody else. So the the quality of that that product doesn't matter. Uh, you can spend your money on yourself. Now that's the best way to spend money because both both cost and quality matter. And when we're working in that situation. We become consumers, and we take the time and the energy necessary to shop for different products, to look at cost and quality, and to make decisions that are right for us. And then the worst possible way to spend money is spending other people's money on other people, and that's what politicians do, especially in a socialized medicine setting. And in that scenario, neither cost nor quality matter, and that's exactly what we get in socialized medicine: is high costs and poor quality. Now, when we look at the COVID nineteen outbreak, uh, the um, the response to it was obviously uh, coming from government. And listen, the uh, the founding fathers knew that uh, you couldn't have no government, right? That was an anarchy type situation, and um, when the country first started, we had a relatively weak federal government, and it didn't work, and that's what led to the Constitutional Congress and our current form of government. And the entire history of our nation has been a debate between the size, scope, and scale of government. And I'm not saying that government has no role in healthcare. What I'm saying is that free market is the main. Um, um, foundation of our healthcare system, and that the government penetration should be as little as possible. But unfortunately, in the system that we have now, especially with the passage of the Affordable Care Act, the government has taken far too much control of our healthcare system and really eliminated free market medicine. And we can see that with this COVID nineteen outbreak, when this thing first started in China. We started getting our information from the World Health Organization. Now, for those of you who are not familiar, the World Health Organization is the medical branch of the United Nations, and is a, a very poor uh, system for delivering healthcare. Now, it's not that the World Health Organization doesn't do anything useful. Uh, but they are fraught with fraud, waste, and abuse, and we have seen that over many, many years. Uh, I can just tell you the World Health Organization. I think it was in 2000 rated the United States healthcare system as I think it was 37th in the world behind Cuba.、Uh, this is obviously ridiculous just on the face of it, and the fact that we even have to talk about it, I think, goes to show just how、uh, poor of an institution the World Health Organization is. And now with the COVID-19 outbreak, where we saw the World Health Organization parrot Chinese Communist Party. Um, propaganda regarding COVID nineteen and putting our own health at risk.、Um, I think we can really see the problems with the World Health Organization. Initially, the Chinese Communist Party was trying to state that there was no human, to, no evidence of human to human transfer of the coronavirus, the COVID nineteen virus. We've seen that to be false.、Uh, initially, when President Trump wanted to implement a very rational travel ban. The Chinese Communist Party、uh, 
called called him racist for it, and the World Health Organization also uh, let out uh, tweets and other propaganda supporting the Chinese Communist Party's position that travel bans were racist. In fact, members of the World Health Organization uh, prevented world leaders from implementing a travel ban at a very critical time. And I think now we know that this coronavirus has spread worldwide and caused untold damage. And a lot of it started because our political bodies got involved in the healthcare and were not telling us the truth about what was going on. We saw Dr. Fauci early on saying he didn't think there was any issue. And then shortly after that, he told us we needed to be locked down for two years. He initially correctly stated that masks don't seem to be helpful in the prevention of influenza-like viruses. Before 2020, if you were to review the literature on masks, that would be very clear to you. Certainly, we know that cloth masks have uh, absolutely no um, positive or have never been shown to have any positive effect on the transmission of influenza-like viruses. And then Fauci eventually came out and said that initially he lied to us. That was his excuse for why he initially said masks don't work and then changed his mind to masks do work. He said, well, I was lying to you because I wanted to preserve the PPE, the personal protective equipment for our medical personnel. Well, that right there is a perfect example of why we should be weary of um, government-run health care because they don't have the individual at heart. They have the state at heart. And so you have a perfect example right there where a public official who is managing us through a crisis gives us erroneous information by his own admission uh, because he's trying to protect the state. Now, your private doctor doesn't act in that fashion. Your private doctor is dedicated to your well-being, and that's the beauty of the doctor-patient relationship. When I see a patient, my fidelity is completely to my patient, and I don't typically think about the state. I think about making sure that my patient has the type of care that they need. <clears throat> People should understand that there is a relationship between hospital systems and the government. I kind of liken the analogy to the public school system. We see now that the teachers' unions, despite overwhelming evidence that our children are safe, we now know that our children have a fourfold less risk of dying of COVID-19 than they do of the typical influenza. We know that we typically have really no policy for managing influenza, but we continue to have the school shutdowns. Now, the teachers' unions are holding out for all sorts of uh, political gains by keeping the schools shut down. And so our children are being used as political pawns in this health care crisis. And it's just another example of how government does not have your best heart uh, your best interests at heart. Now, these hospital systems are very similar to a public school system. They, they service a community, and they receive large amounts of funding to manage uh, Medicare, Medicaid, and SCHIP, which is essentially the socialized medicine arms of our health care system. And so they receive a lot of uh, money from uh, 
state and federal governments based on how they manage uh, the socialized medicine uh, aspects of the community. That is the Medicare, the Medicaid, uh, the TRICARE, which is for our military personnel. And again, I'm not saying that uh, the certain people shouldn't have funding. What I'm saying is that the mechanism and the way that this is set up, this top-down government-run socialized program, is very ineffective at delivering health care. And um, I've reported earlier on this show how hospital systems and political districts, they spend a lot of money. The more money they spend, the more money gets donated to the politicians in that area. And it's just this big uh, revolving door where the government um, moves money to the hospital systems. The hospital systems then donate to the politicians that are in power. And you just sort of see this massive movement of wealth uh, that is uh, given to the hospitals. And so they have a vested interest in these relationships uh, with the politicians. And then the people who sell the products to the hospitals are also in there. And there's a lot of what we call crony capitalism going on there. And I think the experience with COVID-19 illustrates this uh, very clearly. And that's what I want to try and show you here. And let's just start with um, hydroxychloroquine. So hydroxychloroquine, for those of you who, who don't know, and if you haven't heard of hydroxychloroquine, uh, I guess you're not really paying attention, but it's a, it's a medication that is commonly used as prophylaxis for malaria. It's used in the treatment of uh, rheumatoid arthritis and lupus. The medicine has been FDA approved for 65 years. It literally has one of the safest uh, drug profiles available, and most importantly, it's a generic drug. And so it is very, very cheap. Early on, it became apparent that hydroxychloroquine may be effective at preventing the transmission uh, and preventing people from getting very sick uh, from the COVID-19, so long as they were given the medication early and typically in combination for, with zinc. And what we saw immediately was this concerted effort uh, by I'm just going to call it the medical industrial complex. I like to use this analogy that uh, Dwight David Eisenhower talked about when he left office. Uh, one of his uh, admonitions to us was to beware of the military industrial complex. And what he was referring to were all of these people uh, who sell uh, weapon systems and all of the tools necessary to implement war they obviously have a vested interest in continuing the sale of that product. And so there's a, uh, a mechanism in place whereby the, they, they can influence politicians with campaign donations and other things to make policy decisions that result in the perpetuation of the military industrial complex. Well, we have the exact same thing in healthcare today. We call it the, the uh, healthcare industrial complex where, uh, People who stand to benefit by selling products to the masses using government uh, funding have a desire to influence politicians to make policy decisions that will allow them to continue to sell their product. And this hydroxychloroquine uh, scandal, which is really what it is at this point, 
exposes that better than than anything I could imagine. So you have this drug, hydroxychloroquine, has been FDA approved for 65 years, literally one of the safest drug profiles around, very readily available. We have tons of the medicine, so stockpile wasn't an issue. And there was this concerted effort to discredit. So as the pandemic hit and doctors like myself started educating ourselves on the coronavirus, we started uh, I, I personally was following the numbers. I wanted to see who was being affected by this disease. And I discovered very early on that it was older people in their 70s and 80s, usually with comorbid conditions that were at risk. And actually that younger folks were, were very uh, safe, relatively speaking, uh, from this uh, uh, virus. I also learned that hydroxychloroquine may be effective. And so when trying to present my patients with treatment options, I follow the Hippocratic Oath, which is do no harm. And so I ask myself, is taking a drug that's been around for 65 years, and the, the reason that that's so important, the reason I keep mentioning that it's been FDA approved for 65 years is billions of doses of this medicine have been given. We know how it behaves. We know that we can give it to old people, young people, pregnant people. It is very, very safe. And in fact, uh, from a cardiovascular standpoint, I think in the whole history of the drug, there have been something like 50 deaths that have been attributed to hydroxychloroquine related to cardiac disease. And all of those deaths were in people that were taking much higher doses than what we would prescribe for coronavirus. But suddenly, all of these negative studies started coming out. There was initially a VA study that came out in April, and the VA study was a very, very poor study. It took me less than 60 seconds to figure out that it was a meaningless study. It was retrospective. It was perf uh, perf uh, reviewing old veterans who were taking very high doses of hydroxychloroquine that started the medication very late in the disease process and had comorbid conditions. So it was really a poor study, and it did nothing to dissuade doctors from prescribing hydroxychloroquine. And so as the information started to spread from doctor to doctor and and people were starting to share information, as always happens in healthcare. This is how the practice of medicine works. Two important studies came out in the Lancet and in the New England Journal of Medicine. And the Lancet was on May 22nd, and uh, in the New England Journal of Medicine was uh, early in June. And both of these studies suggested that hydroxychloroquine was not only ineffective at treating COVID-19, but it was actually deadly and killing people. Well, by this time, I knew this was false. I had been studying, you know, decades of literature on hydroxychloroquine. In this day and age with uh, information, I was able to go on social media, and I quickly found um, Dr. Didier Raoul, who's a, a virologist in France, who's done tons of work on hydroxychloroquine. Dr. Zelenko up in New York, who had a lot of uh, uh, very good work on hydroxychloroquine. Uh, there's another uh, pulmonologist in Germany, Wolfgang Woodard. I got some good information from him. There was just a ton of information out there. And the media kept um, promoting the idea that we didn't know what was going on, that we needed to wait for that one more study. And it was utterly ridiculous. Well, then suddenly, voila, you have these two studies in the Lancet and New England Journal of Medicine. I've talked about this 
at great length on previous shows, but it turned out that they had to be retracted two weeks after publication. And the reason that they were retracted was because they were caught using fake phony data. So we now know that the number one and number two medical journals on the face of the earth are uh, can be corrupted uh, uh, because prior to that, I would have never thought it was possible for fake phony data to get through the peer review pr- process and published in these renowned journals. But this goes to show you the power of the healthcare industrial complex. They were the, the powers uh, in charge here were absolutely committed to discrediting hydroxychloroquine and preventing it from essentially eliminating this pandemic. And why would that happen? Why? I mean, we're, we're all asking that question. Why would people go out of their way to, um, to cause this mayhem in our healthcare system? Um, well, I can tell you that another drug, rendesmavir, which is uh, produced by a company called Gilead, is an uh, is a, um, antiviral medication. Uh, it's not a generic drug. It it's, uh, costs $3,120 for a five-day dose. And oddly, it has one study. It's not a very good study, but it shows a decrease of uh, three or four days in hospital stay, but no effect on mortality. So you have this medication, rendesmavir, it's got one one poor study showing a decrease in hospital stay, no effect on on um, on mortality, and yet our government has purchased all of the stores of rendesmavir while at the same time preventing us from using hydroxychloroquine. Why in the world would this be? Well, when Donald Trump mentioned that hydroxychloroquine might be effective at preventing the spread of coronavirus and might be an effective treatment for coronavirus and specifically COVID-19, the stock of Gilead, the company that produces rendesmavir, dropped by $21 billion. You can use your own own mind and, and see what you think of that. But there were two fake studies published in the New England Journal of Medicine and The Lancet suggesting that hydroxychloroquine was not only ineffective, but that it was dangerous, that it was killing people, and it had to be retracted two weeks later because they were caught using phony data. But what happened during the time that those studies came out? Well, the World Health Organization immediately pounced on it information and used it as a predicate to stop all studies on hydroxychloroquine going forward. The FDA immediately came out and essentially banned use of hydroxychloroquine. And when the when the the healthcare industrial complex goes to rewriting the history about what happened, they're already starting to lie about it. Um, they they try to make this argument that oh well hydroxychloroquine was always available for for um, doctors to prescribe to their patients that um, you know they they were following the data they just followed these two studies in the New England Journal of Me- Medicine and the Lancet and they banned it this had a very chilling effect on the way that we responded to COVID-19. In fact, in blue states, I can tell you, and I've mentioned it on this show, there are certain states with uh, uh, um, governors who banned hydroxychloroquine, famous in Nevada, famous in Pennsylvania. And in some of these states, the governors repurposed their DEA agents to threaten the licenses of doctors 
and pharmacists who dared to prescribe hydroxychloroquine, this medicine that's been around for 65 years, FDA approved. And their predicate for that was the, the papers printed in the New England Journal of Medicine and the Lancet. Well, those papers had to be retracted, okay? But with the passage of time, people who are not like me uh, sort of forget that. And it gets a little bit hazy, and they can't really follow the timeline. And maybe they didn't even get the information that these f studies were retracted in the New England Journal of Medicine and the Lancet because they were using fake fraudulent studies. But the fact of the matter is the government made a concerted effort, or I should say the, the healthcare industrial complex, because it involves um, hospital systems, insurance companies, uh, some uh, government officials, um, and others uh, who sell product in that space. They're all in cahoots to um, try and control the way our healthcare dollars are spent. And they're trying to restrict the care that you get. And the activity and the behavior towards hydroxychloroquine and rendesmavir illustrate that better than anything I could ever say. Now, the fact that the New England Journal of Medicine and The Lancet came out and, and this led to the World Health Organization stopping studies, um, this led to the FDA banning use, it allowed these blue state governors to then threaten doctors and pharmacists who were trying to prescribe hydroxychloroquine, and what it also did was sort of chill the opinion on hydroxychloroquine. And so now you have doctors who maybe haven't spent that much time researching hydroxychloroquine. Maybe they just came across the study in the New England Journal of Medicine and the Lancet. And by the way, there are other studies out there. There's another big study negative against hydroxychloroquine that was posted in JAMA that uh, when you look at the study, they were using uh, toxic doses. It was a Brazil study. They were using toxic doses of rendesmavir and the people who put that study together are currently under federal investigation for the way they conducted that study. There are lots of other studies out there too and that, that's part of the way the healthcare industrial complex is. They're flooding the zone with these um, studies that confuse people and they make it difficult for us to see uh, what's true and what's not true and the overall effect of this is that there's not a full-throated push for the use of hydroxychloroquine. In fact, when um, doctors like me and others contact our politicians, they'll, they'll tell us flat out, listen, it's a, it's a political football, and that's the key issue here. When you have socialized medicine, if we were to get Medicare for all, politics is always going to be front and center of the health care that you get. So you have these politicians who are actually sympathetic to the idea that hydroxychloroquine seems to be effective, that there's lots of research out there that suggests that it's effective, but they're unwilling to act because there are negative political consequences if anybody opens their mouth and talks about hydroxychloroquine now. And we even got to the point where our agencies, right, the FDA understands exactly what happened. They know that because these phony studies came out in the Lancet and the New England Journal of Medicine, it had the practical effect of preventing widespread use of hydroxychloroquine. Now, f fortunately, because we had a lot of courageous doctors out there who were willing to face cancel culture and go out and confront um, the medical industrial complex, to get the truth out to people, the word is starting to get around that hydroxychloroquine works, but they're still um, 
there's still uh, some hurdles to overcome. The the scam that was perpetrated on us actually has slowed dramatically the use of hydroxychloroquine, and this could have been corrected at the FDA. Uh, Stephen Hahn, who's the director of the FDA, knows full well that hydroxychloroquine usage has been slowed by this scam, and he had the ability to make this drug on-label use for COVID-19, and he refused to do it. And so I'm here to tell you that we have these government agencies that are involved in our healthcare decision making, and they are preventing us from delivering the best possible healthcare. And we're going to talk about how free market medicine handled the same situation and is delivering the truth and the best possible healthcare when we come back from the break. You're listening to the Doctors Lounge on America's Web Radio. I'm Dr. Scott Barber. I'll see you guys in a second. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schurz, as we talk about the topics that doctors talk about amongst themselves, such as Medicare, Obamacare, alternative forms of care, and health information technology. Join us every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back, everybody, to the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. I'm Dr. Scott Barber. Today we've been talking about how the response to the COVID-19 outbreak has illustrated the flaws with government-run socialized medicine and extolled the virtues of free market health care. And we were just talking about how... Exhibit one in the failure of government-run health care was hydroxychloroquine. There are now more than 50 studies showing the efficacy of hydroxychloroquine in the treatment of COVID-19. And despite that, there's uh, still this chilling effect on the prescribing of hydroxychloroquine to patients for the treatment of COVID-19 based on fake, phony, fraudulent studies that were published in the New England Journal of Medicine and The Lancet, other phony studies that we see in JAMA. Um, We saw the FDA come in and ban the use of hydroxychloroquine. When I say ban it, they, they basically came out against hydroxychloroquine for COVID-19. And then you had these blue state governors that 
repurposed their DEA agents to go and attack doctors and pharmacists who, per, who were prescribing hydroxychloroquine, and so they were afraid to do it. Now, when we look back on it and we say, well, wait a second, you guys banned it, they'll say, whoa, 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 we never banned it. You were always allowed to do it. I mean, just look at the law. Once a drug is FDA approved, uh, that a doctor and a patient can prescribe it even for off-label use. That's the story that they're going to give you now when we look back on it. But the practical effect during that period of time when those fake phony studies were out there before they were retracted, the predicate was there for the WHO to stop uh, studies on hydroxychloroquine, all this negative press on hydroxychloroquine, and doctors became afraid to prescribe it. And I can just tell you personally, um, I have people calling me and contacting me through social media, through email, through phone calls, uh, begging me to prescribe them hydroxychloroquine, even though they live in other states. And this goes to show you the sneaky way in which the medical industrial complex has worked to make sure that hydroxychloroquine isn't so widely spread. And the point that we're always trying to make on this show is that free market health care is designed to promote the doctor-patient relationship, and that's where the doctor works in the patient, the individual patient's own best interest. This is in stark contrast to government-run health care, where the government serves the state. You get a one-size-fits-all, top-down control healthcare system that they will tell you is Medicare for all and everybody gets your health care and your health care is free. But when you get right down to the actual care you're getting, you don't get it. And let's just look at the treatment of COVID-19. Right now, the research and the data available suggests to me that hydroxychloroquine is a very effective treatment for COVID-19 given early, given with zinc, um, and given in lower doses. Now, the reason that you don't have widespread use is because you have hospital systems that employ doctors that are part of this healthcare industrial complex that don't want their doctors prescribing hydroxychloroquine because they're part of this whole scam designed to discredit this widely available, cheap, generic medication that nobody's going to get rich on in favor of Rendesmavir, $3,120 for, uh, for uh, a five-day use that has shown three to four days decrease uh, hospital stay and no effect on mortality. One study. Uh, this is utterly ridiculous. The other thing you have to understand is, and listen, we're not impugning all healthcare workers, doctors and nurses. I'm one of them. There are a lot of great ones out there. But the healthcare industrial complex that over decades of penetration of government control, forcing private doctors out of business, forcing them to be employed. You have these hospital systems that are just like teachers unions that are in cahoots with government to stamp out any free market competition and to force people into the government-run healthcare system where they can then uh, use the products and services and, and um, funds that are spread around from tax dollars. And uh, we can see this with masks. So uh, I'm just going to tell you, I've been studying masks for probably 35 years now. In fact, it's just kind of funny. One of the very first things that got my attention when I was in medical school, and listen, when I got to medical school, I had applied five times before I got accepted. So when I showed up to medical school, 
I was very uh, I was very ready to learn, and I I really coveted that position, and I took it seriously. I was five years older than most of my peers, so I was a bit more mature, and I really understood that I owed my patients, my future patients, I owed them every fiber of my being to learn as much as I could so that I would be the best possible doctor. One of the first things that came up to me was masks, and I studied it in depth. Why do we wear them? When do, they, when do we wear them? How do they work? How did we even get started with masks? And so I've been thinking about masks for 35 years. And it was very clear in the literature that there was no evidence that masks were effective at preventing the transmission of influenza-like illnesses. And the reason we call them influenza-like illnesses, there's lots of these viruses that cause what we call the common flu or the common cold. There's influenza virus. There's coronavirus. Yes, coronaviruses have been around for a while. Uh, rhinovirus, um, paramyxovirus, there's a bunch of them. And they all kind of work with these respiratory droplets and they cause respiratory infection. And influenza is the one that we study the most. And so we sort of extrapolate if you study influenza-like illnesses, it sort of gives you information about how some of these other viruses would behave. And so over the decades of study, there's never been really any good studies that suggest that masks are effective at preventing influenza-like illnesses. Now, in particular, the only randomized control study that I'm aware of on cloth masks is that the group that wore masks in that particular study actually had a higher rate of infection than people who were wearing no masks. So, you know, you have a situation here where the data is telling us one thing, but because of the penetration of politics into our healthcare system, we're getting this whole mask situation going on. And now, now we have uh, the politics completely taken over because we essentially have a government-run healthcare system on this COVID um, um, pandemic. And so we have this ridiculous set of policies for the masks. And this is another important thing. I'm always trying to explain to you the craziness of how medicine works because of government control and because of the lack of free market um, solutions. And masks are a great example of that. And I'm just going to direct you to how we use masks. So first of all, when you're looking at any research, any research whatsoever that suggests that masks may be effective are talking about a particular kind of mask, call an N95 or a surgical mask. Well, I think the healthcare industrial complex figured out very early on that there weren't enough N95 masks or surgical masks to go around, and so it would be impractical to mandate that people wore that. It would be really impossible for people to get it. So they had to come up with another scam. And that's what I'm going to call it, a scam. Now, listen, I'm not anti-mask in the sense that if you have a private business and you feel better with masks and you want me to wear a mask, I will wear it. I do not want the government mandating me masks. I'm not going to comply with the government mandating me masks because it's not based in any science whatsoever. Um, I'm told by family members, I'm told by business associates, I'm told by people that I deal with in the political space to stop talking about masks. It's politically uh, not favorable, you know, all the rest of it. It's going to expose me to cancel culture. And I just kind of tell people I am where I am today because I just tell the truth. And I just 
follow the science and I just follow the data and I try to do the right thing. I'm not perfect. I'm a sinner like everybody else. I make mistakes. But my heart is pure in the sense that when I'm working for my patients, I'm working to make them better. My fidelity is to my patients. I don't have any ulterior motives to to some politician or to somebody who's who's doing business with me. Um, and the people who hold me accountable are the marketplace. If my patients aren't doing well, that's going to affect me negatively and it's going to affect my business. And so I am incentivized to do well. So let's look at masks. So we already know that if there is any data out there suggesting that masks work, it's usually for an N95 mask or a surgical mask. We can all agree that just about nobody is using those masks. The only randomized controlled trial that I'm aware of on cloth masks actually showed that cloth mask people are more likely to get sick than not wearing a mask at all. So now we have a world where almost everybody is wearing a cloth masks, cloth mask. Certainly none of the masks that we're wearing are monitored by the FDA for quality. In fact, I know that because no masks are monitored by the FDA for quality. So I'm here to tell you that there is no extra effort being made to make sure that whatever masks we are using have any kind of standard. Now, if any of you have been somewhere where there's a mask mandate, especially at a restaurant, you'll know that you show up at the door, your mask is off. You say, I have a table for four. I would like uh, to have some dinner. They say, sure, you got to come in, but you got to put your mask on. So you put your mask on, you walk to the table, you sit down, you take your mask off to eat. Uh, for me, I got to go use the restroom probably about every 20 to 30 minutes. So midway through dinner, I got to go take go to the bathroom. So I grab my mask. I put it on. I go to the bathroom, come back to the table, take my mask off. I continue eating. We finish dinner. We pay the bill up. Oh, now we got to leave. I put my mask back on and we walk out. I'm asking you, is there anybody out there who thinks that's doing anything? I mean, anybody. And if you are, I genuinely feel sorry for you because you've lost any ability to critically think. I think we all can agree that this sort of intermittent mask wearing is is not effective. But yet the healthcare industrial complex has got us all wearing masks. And so this bizarre policy and procedure everywhere we go which we all know has no effect whatsoever, is taking hold. And in the meantime, companies that are selling masks are saying to themselves, wow, this is really great business. I just keep making these cheap masks. Um, I'm going to go to my politicians and say, hey, we should do more mask mandates. And uh, let's, let's, let's make sure that everybody has to have a mask. I was looking at my, my uh, laundry room the other day, and I noticed there was about 100 masks there. And I just rolled my eyes like, how in the world? I mean, I'm not a big believer in the mask. And yet in my household, I have at least a hundred different kinds of masks for my kids. And, you know, my wife has purchased them. We've tried, you know, this mask and that mask, which one is the most comfortable. And now my wife is getting to which one looks good. I mean, it's really gotten insane. My daughter uh, had a birthday the other week and uh, we took her and her friends to uh, Treetop Quest. That's one of these places where you go up in the trees and you zip line and you cl climb across these uh you know, unstable bridges and things like that. And it's, it's scary. You're up high. And uh, my daughter, she's fearless and she absolutely loves it. Well, when we showed up there, we're outdoors in order to go get you, you kind of go through a little lesson plan early on. So when you're, our group went at two o'clock, so they called us in and they took us into a little area that has 
all of the ropes and things uh, on ground level so that we can all practice and make sure we understand how to use all of our harnesses. Of course, we have to have our masks on. Uh, when we finish, you have to have your mask on until you get to the tree. But once you get up in the tree, then you're allowed to take your mask off. And I'm thinking to myself, this company is doing the same thing I did with my company, which is how do I prevent the government from fining me and shutting me down and create the illusion that I'm participating in something so that they'll just leave me alone? And that's really what's happening here. That's the exact same thing that happens in socialized medicine in the hospital with uh, certain um, procedures and things. They have no basis in science or reality. It just gets started and implemented, and then the government of the hospital perpetuates these practices. One of the things I like to talk about to you guys is the on-time start. Now, Medicare has control has con- complete control of all the hospitals. So Medicare regulations set the rules for the hospitals. So Medicare has come up with this thing they call the on-time start. So it's the first case of the day. If you're supposed to start at 7.30 in the morning, they actually keep data on uh, when you make your first incision on every surgeon, and then that data is collected and submitted to Medicare, and then the reimbursement for the hospital is based on how accurate that data is and how if they, you know, you get 89% or or whatever, I don't know what the number is, you get a certain percentage of on-time starts, uh, then Medicare will pay an additional 1% or 2 or 3%. Now, this is a completely stupid criteria. It has nothing to do with anything because some surgeries I do take me a half an hour or an hour to set up, and others I just start right away. And so there are other factors involved at what um, when you make your first incision that have nothing to do with the quality of medicine. And we're going to get into that a little bit more when we come back from this next break. You're listening to the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. I'm Dr. Scott Barber. I'll be back in a second. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Hey folks, this is Victor Armendariz with the On Point with Victor show. Just to remind you, don't miss every Tuesday 2 to 3 live right here on America's Web Radio. And remember, I'm not angry, I'm just right. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back, everybody, to the Doctor's Lounge. You're listening to Dr. Scott Barber on America's Web Radio. We've been talking about how when we have a government-run healthcare system or a government-run any system, how these crazy policies uh, get into place that have no basis in 
efficiency or science or anything, and they just get perpetuated. And we talked about how masks got implemented based on no science. You know, we go to a restaurant, you wear the mask to to walk to the table, but then you take it off to eat, and then you put the mask back on to leave, and somehow we think something is going on there that's helpful. Uh, I don't know who thinks that. I certainly don't. Uh, I was explaining how I took my daughter uh, for her birthday to Treetop Quest with all of her friends, and we had to wear a mask out in the woods to get our instruction on how to hook up to, to all the ropes and things on the tree, but wear a mask to the tree. But when we get up in the treetops, we can take the mask off. And it became obvious to me that companies are out there trying to come up with some sort of mask policy that creates the illusion that they're in compliance with some policy so that government doesn't come in and shut them down. And it has absolutely no practical function. It has no useful uh, criteria, but there are entities that are going to want to continue this procedure, uh, primarily people who sell masks. You have a mask that has no regulation as to quality or functionality, and they've got a, uh, a situation where people are forced to purchase this product, and it's just absolutely ridiculous. And I was trying to use these things that are happening with COVID-19 and our response to it as an illustration of just how failed government is at delivering health care. And I know I've tried to explain over over my time on this show about how government-run health care creates these ridiculous policies in the way we administer health care. And this COVID-19 thing really illustrates it. So you can see how ridiculous the situation is with masks. And I was just talking about um, how because Medicare controls all the hospital systems, basically Medicare rules rule how all health care is implemented. And uh, that's a story for another day how that happened. But this is a real problem with our health care system. One of the things that they have implemented is what they call the on-time start, which is when every surgeon makes that first incision. And for most hospitals, the first incision is supposed to be made at 730. But there's a lot of setup that goes into it. So when I show up to the operating room, I get in there. It takes time for them to get the equipment. There's a lot of things that have to happen. We've got to get the patient in the room. Sometimes the patient is a hard stick. You know, it's difficult to find the veins. And, and you know, there are just things that happen that slow the process down. There are certain surgeries I do that take me like an hour just to set it up to get into position so that I can begin to do the surgery. And there are other operations where you lay the patient down on the table, you drape it out, and you begin operating. And so there are a lot of factors that go into when I'm going to make that first incision that have nothing to do with on-time start time. Now, I'm going to tell you that as a surgeon, I've always taken complete control of my patients. I don't let anybody else manage anything of any importance. So I check the labs when they're important. I check everything myself of importance. Now, the bureaucracy comes in and does a whole bunch of other things. You've, if any of you've had surgery, you know that the doctor's got to kind kind of come in and sign the the spot where they're going to be operating. Um, but there's this crazy control of bureaucracy. Well, uh, I want to say I don't know, maybe ten years ago, I get a text from or I get a letter from the hospital, a particular hospital where I was working, that told me I had something like. 70% or 72% late starts and that they were somehow punishing me or giving me a warning letter for these late starts. And I'm looking at that 
and 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 it was from six months earlier. So I'm trying to think back. What's going on six months ago where I was late seventy percent of the time? And the answer was none. Nothing was going on. I'm there every time, ready to go, but. I got to wait for the hospital to bring back the patient. I got to wait for the employees to do all the stuff that they do. I have to wait on the anesthesiology team to put the patient to sleep. And then I got to wait on the uh, staff of the hospital to bring the equipment in that I need. And so I stand there. And when we're ready, we're ready. And we start. And I never say a word when we start late. But what's happening is the bureaucracy has penalties for the other employees, the people who are responsible for bringing up the equipment or the people in the pre-op area that are responsible for getting a patient ready to go to sleep. And they don't want to take the blame for having a late start. And so what they do is they blame the surgeon because I'm so focused on doing the procedure. I'm not paying attention to any of this stuff. And so when the paperwork comes around, who do they blame? They blame the surgeon. By this time, I'm already gone. And so six months later, I get a letter saying I got 70% late starts. And I'm thinking to myself, this is ridiculous. And so I was initially very annoyed by this. And so I would show up at the hospital and I did it for probably a month. I text, I sent a text to the CEO of the hospital and I would say, I'm here in the OR and I'm waiting. And then I would just give them a blow-by-blow. They don't have this instrument. They don't have that. They can't get an IV. Anesthesia is late. And just pointing out all the things that happened, then I would text him, okay, I'm starting now. And I'd put the time in. And I wanted there to be a written record of every single um, event that I had so I could show him that, that I was not responsible for any of these late start times. Now, Eventually, a month went by, and he, he you know, basically begged for mercy. He pleaded with me to stop sending him these texts, that he understands that this is happening. And, you know, he's, he's kind of a victim of the bureaucracy as well. Uh, but the point is, you got this stupid procedure, an on-time start time, that has no basis in quality of care. But it becomes this major procedure. It becomes this major issue that the hospital is spending resources on to document. It's actually totally inaccurate when they get the information and i'm spending my time and energy actually dealing with this stupidity this is what happens in a government-run healthcare system and you can see it happening now with the masks we have these crazy mask policies and you know every store is different um you know the um you know i don't know how many of you have had this affect your life i was just um, talking to David here, and he was talking about a funeral he went to, and they had all these arbitrary restrictions. You, you, you could be out there for eight minutes. And this kind of brings me to another very important issue when we talk about government-run health care versus free market health care, and that is the elitists, the people who are going to impose this government-run socialized health care system on you are not going to be following these procedures themselves. And I think most of you by now have seen our Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, who implemented draconian mask mandates and lockdowns in her city, actually had a hair salon open up so that she could come in and get her hair done. And guess what was seen on the um, security video when she was going in? She had no mask. So you have this person. She's a powerful, powerful person. And she's 
implementing mask mandates on the little people who live in her district. She's shutting down businesses. People are actually struggling to keep their businesses afloat. But when she needs to get her hair done, well, it's not an issue. And we see this all the time in government-run health care. Uh, one of the most famous and irritating to me was at the time that the Affordable Care Act was being debated and we were having this worldwide debate over socialized medicine versus free market medicine, the premier of Newfoundland, who was a very big proponent of socialized government-run health care uh, like they have in Canada, well, he had a heart issue and he needed a surgery. And this particular surgery wasn't offered in Canada. So he got on a private plane and he flew to Miami and he had his heart surgery there. And when he was confronted about the hypocrisy of him being this staunch advocate for government-run socialized medicine. And then when he needs a medical condition, he uses his position, power, and influence to go to Miami to get this procedure done there. When he was confronted with this hypocrisy, his response was, well, it's my body. I can do what I want with it. It's my health care. I can do what I want. This is sort of the attitude that the, the governing elite always have. They get a certain standard of care for themselves but we, us peasants, we get the VA treatment, you know? We get the bureaucracy. We get the limitations on our care. We get the loss of choice. We get the negative, well, they get this too, which is what I don't ever understand is, you understand that when you damage the entire profession of healthcare, you're damaging it for yourself too. Now, they're going to make sure that they get the best doctors and the best equipment and the best uh, situations for themselves. But what they don't realize is that when you have a whole system that's predicated on socialized medicine, the whole system is going to be inferior. Even the best doctors do their best work or do their worst work in a socialized medicine setting. And so we see this situation where COVID-19 has been primarily a government-run response. It's been failing in terms of how it's been treating us. We have the worst economic disaster predicated on lockdowns that have no science. We had hydroxychloroquine that was discredited using fake phony data. And I think it became, it's very clear that the government does not have your best interests at heart. We have an opportunity to vote ourselves free market health care coming up in the next election. I want you to all pay attention. We're going to pick this up next time on the Doctor's Lounge. You're listening to America's Web Radio. I'm Dr. Scott Barber. Thanks for listening. You can reach me on Twitter at at Dr. Scott underscore Atlanta. That's at Dr. Scott underscore Atlanta. I look forward to talking to you guys next time. Have a great week. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.